0: And please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our central verse for tonight's text is this one, Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus on the cross and his answer to the repentant thief. And Jesus said unto him, verily or truly, or as it says in the Greek, amen, I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, how precious is that promise and bought at such great cost. Help us, Lord, to see you in your suffering tonight, to see something of your graciousness and to be made better imitators of it. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Please be, please be seated. The essence of tonight's message is the hate of the world converging and closing in on Christ as the graciousness of Christ. Flows out from that. So if you've got that, you've really got the whole message. So if you have anything you need to be doing this evening, I'll understand if you want to go early. Um, but there I do have a little bit more in in terms of um, working that out and examining this this passage a little more. And that is that as as we look at how Christ responds on the cross, and we look at Christ as our example, and think of how we should respond when. In like manner we encounter adversity, we encounter difficulty, we encounter inconvenience or we encounter brutal persecution. Uh, How do we respond? And a a kind of a a trivial uh, little vignette came to mind and that was a long time ago when I was in the National Guard. Our unit was activated uh, for an event in downtown Atlanta and so we were uh, called to our armory and we gathered our equipment together, packed up everything. And we went down to Fort Gillum and spent the night in a large warehouse there. And early the next morning we would be deployed to be part of a massive security force that was uh, being arrayed that day in uh, in downtown Atlanta. And in packing my things, I had a little bag that had my shaving cream and my toothpaste and, and all that in it. And I managed to pack it in such a way that something heavy sat on top of the shaving cream can. And so it opened up and filled up my little toiletries bag with shaving cream and a few other things in, in, my, uh, in my equipment and gear. And so... I looked at it and I thought, well that's inconvenient. So I went outside and found the water buffalo. The water buffalo is just a a giant tank of water that is towed by a truck and it has a number of faucets on it so that there's always drinkable water nearby. And so I went out and I turned on one of the faucets and started rinsing out my stuff. Well, We weren't the only guard unit there, I believe, for this particular event. They activated everybody except maybe the local Cub Scout den. So there were a number of other uh, National Guardsmen out there, and one man, complete stranger, from another unit walked up to me and said, excuse me, are you a Christian? And I said, well, yes. And he said, well, I thought so, because you weren't cussing like the other fellas. (laughs) So, um, now... I, I am here to tell you that I have family here and, um, and they can tell you that there are other days when I'm just not quite at my best. And, uh, and so I, I certainly have my failings too, but, but that one day, praise God, I did, I did something right. Now on a much uh, more extreme um, example, you might remember the shooting that happened at the Charleston church a couple of years ago And how uh, you might have seen how in the courtroom, uh, speaking through a, a video monitor, the murderer was confronted by one of the survivors of the shooting. And it was a woman whose daughter had been killed by this young man. And she made a point of saying that in Christ, she forgave him and, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, but that was, I thought, a powerful demonstration of the gospel that this woman has suffered something that we would hope no parent would have to suffer and yet she stood uh, before her daughter's murderer and forgave him in Christ. Um, another example I can think of uh, that comes from uh, Keeping Up with the Persecuted Church and with the uh, Voice of the Martyrs newsletters A woman, an Iraqi woman, and you can bear this in mind as we have a fundraiser going to provide housing for Iraqi Christians. An Iraqi woman said, I thank God for ISIS. They taught me to trust Jesus. Now, this is something that where we see in huge ways people taking the gospel seriously and how in moments of intense crisis, the grace of God comes out. And you'll see this as we look at the crucifixion of Christ. The way Luke portrays the crucifixion, he shows that there are three rings of people around Christ. And he starts with the outside ring and brings us closer and brings us to that center, uh, brings us to Christ, where we have him promising to the repentant thief salvation. And then... Something happens because uh, Luke takes us from the cross and moves us outward. And so we see the effect of worldly hatred coming in, and we see the effect of, of the grace of Christ going out. Pick up with me in verses 33 and 34 in your Bibles. And we have this, uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 33-34, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, on the one, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now, we could camp out on just those passages for a long time, but the... Two thieves with whom Jesus was crucified are identified as malefactors or as, uh, as criminals, hardened criminals uh, by Luke, and Matthew identifies them as thieves. And so it is possible that these people were being crucified um, for theft and possibly murder as well. When you have repressive regimes like the like at this point the the Roman government, there were times when they they do sometimes uh, punish real criminals uh, as well as um, are, become agents of persecution. But in this case, these two men were were criminals who uh, perhaps hardened and uh, brutal dangerous criminals who were uh, who were crucified with Jesus and were about to be Uh, have dealt out to them, capital punishment. And in in this, you'll see that there is one on Jesus' right, one on Jesus' left, and that brings to mind Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 25, when he talks about how when he returns, not as Savior, but when he returns in judgment, and he will put the sheep on his right hand, and he will put the goats on his left hand, and the sheep will enter into eternal life, and the goats will enter into eternal judgment. And so perhaps a similar thing is going on here. In the meantime, his persecutors the most value they find in him is the garment that he's wearing. And they part it and, uh, uh, and cast lots for it. And so the, um, uh, there, there's a real contempt for who Jesus is amongst these Roman soldiers. And as one scholar pointed out. Remember that these Roman soldiers, their nine to five job was executing people gruesomely and brutally. And so these were people who probably had severely seared consciences and probably had at this point in time become utterly hardened to the suffering of other people because that's all they did all day was inflicted on other people until they became became numb to it And so all Jesus is good for to them is a new article of clothing that they can roll the dice for. And in the midst of this, while Jesus is undergoing a severe physical punishment, uh, that of crucifixion, he is urging forgiveness for them. And notice they didn't ask for that forgiveness. This is an unsought for forgiveness, which Jesus is urging the father to grant to these people. And so as we uh, resume the narrative, let's take a look at verses 35 through 39, and we have this. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them. Notice that you have the ordinary people and the rulers, so you have the, the high and the low of society. And as we'll find out later on, man and woman and then even uh, a sense of bond and free. This is sort of uh, the evil version of Galatians 3.28 where um, rich and poor and um, uh, Jew and Gentile and male and female are all unified in their hatred of Christ and their mocking and their, their ridiculing of Christ. So we have, and the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, And Latin and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. And so you see the outer ring of the people standing around the cross, mocking and taunting Christ. And where have you heard this language before? Well, back in the temptation of Christ, was it not Satan who said, If you're the son of God then do this. Perform this miracle. Do this trick to satisfy me or to amuse me. And so you have this very irreverent demanding of Christ that you first heard from Satan early on in the gospel. And now you hear that same voice. If you're the son of God, then you will do this for me. And then it moves on to the soldiers. So we come a little closer to the cross uh, with the soldiers at the foot of the cross who take entertainment in the suffering of others and so they they mock him as perhaps they had mocked thousands of others in their uh, career as Roman executioners and then it comes even closer and you have one of the most insane moments ever recorded in scripture is a condemned criminal And as we know from the words of the other criminal, one who was rightfully condemned for his crimes and cursing his savior at the point of death. And in the midst of this, you have something fascinating going on with this superscription that you have over Jesus' head, written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, you have the common languages of Jew and Gentile, at the same time mocking Christ and at the same time acknowledging that he is the king of the Jews. This is similar to the Roman soldiers representing a world government bowing before Jesus in mockery, uh, or perhaps it was the uh, when Jesus reminds the Sanhedrin that has put him on trial that he is the son of man and one day he will be in judgment over them, that while the Sanhedrin mocked him in their trial and while the Roman soldiers representing the world, uh, the Gentiles mocked Jesus in their humiliation of him, at the same time, They are foretelling that time when they will bow before him and they will acknowledge him as as king of the Jews. Uh, One commentator suggests this, that with these three languages, you have Hebrew, which is the local language. Hebrew and Aramaic would have been spoken commonly among the Jewish people of of, uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And then you have Greek, which is the business language of the Mediterranean. And then you have Latin, which is the language of the Roman Empire. And so you have, according to one commentator, a sense of a future glimpse of the gospel, that this is going out to all nations and is going to be inclusive of all people. Because the uh, believers of the first century were First Jews and then many Gentiles, of course, and of course we're here, and uh, most of us have have no direct Jewish ancestry, so we can be very thankful that the gospel has has gone out to the Gentiles, and in the midst of this, one criminal does repent, and this is a turning point in this particular passage, and so. With this repentant thief, Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the Greek uh, for that passage is translated very straightforwardly here in the King James, or perhaps you're reading this in the ESV, and... There's not a lot of nuance to it. It's very straightforward and, and is almost as easy to read in Greek as it is in English. And it is simply Jesus is promising paradise salvation today to this repentant thief. The word paradise is an interesting word, however. It may be of Persian origin. And I wish our friend Mohammed was here to uh, to uh, verify that for me, but um, anyway, the uh, uh, it is a a Persian word that has the idea of a garden, a place that is peaceful, a place that is protected, a place that is delightful to the senses, and this Persian word may have come into the Hebrew language, and may on occasion be used to refer back to the Garden of Eden. And what's important about the Garden of Eden, what really makes that garden beautiful is the presence of God and the fellowship of God and man before the fall, when things were good, when God had decreed every day of creation was good, and then when he sees the whole functioning together, he says it is very good. And that includes man, woman, animals, the uh, relationship between man and God, the relationship between man and woman, the relationship between humans and nature was at that moment very good. And so, Eden refers back to more than just a pleasant garden uh, or, or a, um, a place that would be uh, delightful, calming, soothing, relaxing to be in. But it's a, it's a matter of fellowship. And really, that matters more than anything. There are Christians that have enjoyed immensely sweet fellowship with one another in times of persecution. The circumstances were bad, but the fellowship was good. And so for us, this is referring forward to Revelation 21 when we have a new heaven and we have a new earth and we have a promise given to us in this vision which John has seen when he says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. I don't think it's a news flash to inform you that in this current existence we have death, we have sorrow, we have crying, and we do have pain. But the good news is that because of Jesus, his crucifixion, because of his resurrection, because of his conquest over sin and death, those things are temporary. And there is a time when they will be forgotten. And we will not remember pain, we will not remember sorrow, we will not remember grieving, we will not remember death. And that's what we have to look forward to. That is the paradise that is coming, the new heaven and the new earth where everything is made better than anything ever was in the past. And what's more is that we'll be in a situation where there will be perfect fellowship with God and with his redeemed people. And so there will be uh, a blessed time to come. Now, I'm going to kind of skim over verses 44 through 49 just to show you something about what's happening. We've seen as we start at the outer ring and work our way in, we have humiliation, mocking, hatred, vilification, animosity towards Christ, and then one thief repents. And so closest to Christ is the repentant thief who receives this promise of eternal life. And then in verse 44, supernatural events begin to occur. There is a darkness that comes over the earth during an hour when there should have been brilliant sunlight. And then the veil of the temple in verse 45 is torn. And as we know from other gospels, from the top, to the bottom, as the fellowship between God and man is restored in Christ, and there's no longer a division between us and the Holy of Holies. Now, as it says in the book of Hebrews, we walk right in, not expecting judgment, but mercy and help. And so, at this point, Jesus dies and says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and then look at verse 47. We have the repentant thief right next to Jesus and now the next ring outward at the foot of the cross. We have the centurion who says, certainly this was a righteous man. Think of the change of heart that would have had to have taken place in such a man as that. Uh, I've already described what he does for a living and think if, if that man could recognize righteousness in Jesus, a significant heart change has taken place. And then in verse 48, we move back to the outer ring and we have this, and all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned and all his acquaintance and the woman that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And so there's this gesture of repentance On those on the outside. So, as hatred comes in on Christ, Jesus, who could have called 12 legions of angels to. Uh, to his service at any given moment certainly had the power and we might even argue the right as the only innocent man so badly treated in human history to call for that legion of angels to bring extermination and judgment once and for all on this people who had crucified him. And instead, it is his grace that goes out and it is a grace that we have seen since the beginning I want you to recall Genesis 3 when the Lord is confronting Adam and Eve and, and the serpent on the bringing of sin into the world and those first really acts, plural, of disobedience to him. And what does Adam say? He says, the woman that you gave me, And right then and there, God had every right to simply eliminate Adam and start over with a new humanity because Adam was the first to blame God for his sin. And so what do we have instead? We have grace instead of Adam and Eve being punished for their sins. Well, they were punished for their sins, but instead of them receiving that direct punishment of, of immediate death for their sins, although death would be working in them, what does God do? He provides coverings for them, coverings from another animal. Their covering, which they had made on their own, was unsatisfactory, but the covering that God had granted to them, which required a sacrifice, was satisfactory to God. And so they were cast out of the garden but with hints and clues of the gospel that would bring us back to an even better garden and one where there would be perfect fellowship and all the effects of sin and the fall done away with forever. So as we look at Christ, let's take a look at ourselves and ask ourselves, how do we respond in times of adversity? And I want to take you to what is probably the favorite parent passage in the entire Bible. And that is where Paul admonishes the Philippian church, do all things without murmuring and disputings. And uh, all parents like to beat their children over the head with that look, it's right here in the Bible. And then all they have to say is, but mom, but dad, yesterday you were, that, uh, then you plead the, the fifth commandment and the fifth amendment at the same time and uh, tell them that um, they just need to be uh, doing things without murmuring and disputing. But you don't want to stop at verse 14. You want to take a look at verse 15 because this doesn't, I mean, it does apply to our children. Our children should do things without murmurings and disputings. <clears throat> so should we. And uh, here is why, verse 15. Verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And so, when we have these moments of adversity, these moments of difficulty, whether it's a trivial thing and and isn't it funny how sometimes we become more bent out of shape over trivial, insignificant, forgettable things than we sometimes do over the big things. And yet God is sovereign over all of those things. Um, We need to remember just who it is that we are and we need to remember what it is that God is doing through that circumstance. That as the grace of Christ went outward from the cross, and brought conversion and change of heart to others who were who were near him and, and going out. You and I are links in the chain of that grace forged at Calvary, one link at a time, as someone brought the gospel to us and as we bring the gospel to others, and that, that chain of, of gospel continues onward until Christ returns. We are also like the river that Ezekiel mentions in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel has this magnificent vision of a river that proceeds as a trickle from the throne of God and becomes deeper and wider and broader as it goes on. And Ezekiel, in his uh, conversation with an angel, says this, "'Then said he unto me, "'These waters issue out toward the east country "'and go down into the desert and go into the sea.'" Which, bring brought, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. You and I are caught up in the tide of that river. And as Jesus says that we are conduits of we have rivers of living water that flow out of us and Jesus of course is talking about the Holy Spirit that in these times of difficulty in these times of adversity in these times of trial we have an opportunity to be that river to imitate Christ in his suffering to be a conduit of that grace of that mercy to others that are watching us in our times of trial In wrapping this up, there's also another sobering aspect to this that we're either on one side of the cross or we're on the other. And perhaps you have seen the Orthodox cross, which has some very, very interesting symbolism in it. And you might remember that there's a bottom line on the cross that is tilted at an angle. And that is a reminder that when Jesus was crucified, one thief repented, and went heavenward the other thief denied Christ died denouncing Christ and went into judgment and so it's a sobering reminder of the need for repentance and so we're either on one side of the cross or the other but we do know this that Jesus will accept anyone at any time somebody pointed out and I wish I could give credit because it was, a, it was a good insight that we have the thief on the cross to remind us that we can repent at any time. But we only have one thief on the cross so as to uh, remind us not to be flippant about waiting until the last minute because uh, the, the, the thief knew that his time was coming very quickly to an end. And there are times in when we may be called out of this world and we have simply no idea when that time will be or what will happen. So, in terms of salvation, the question is which side of the cross are you on? Which side of the cross am I on? In terms of sanctification and working out our salvation, I would simply say this from the passage in Luke Do not fear to own Christ when all reject him because all will bow before him, and there is a time coming when we will say with Job that we will see him in glory with our own eyes. And so we have something tremendously awesome to look forward to. So acknowledge Christ now, because everybody will be acknowledging Christ in that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.